This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Josh Powell loaded his sons, Charlie and Brayden, into their car seats on Saturday, December 19th of 2009. He was leaving West Valley City, Utah, for his dad's house on the outskirts of Puyallup, Washington. His wife, Susan, had been missing for 12 days. Ellis Maxwell, West Valley City's lead detective on the case, was powerless to keep Josh in Utah. It was frustrating at, at, at the most because, you know, this is a, a crime that we're investigating here. And, you know, the, the individual that we're really focusing on is now leaving the state and going 12 hours away. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, Josh dropped the boys with Susan's parents. Each time, he refused to even set foot inside his in-law's home. Susan's dad, Chuck Cox, had suspected from the beginning that Josh was responsible for his daughter's disappearance. I didn't have anything to say for him other than, what did you do, you creep, you know? You better get her, you better find, find her and show us where she is and free her from wherever you have her stashed or whatever you've done. Between Christmas and New Year's, West Valley police learned about Josh's request to withdraw Susan's retirement using the power of attorney she had signed earlier that year. They couldn't stop the distribution. The paperwork was airtight. At the start of the new year, Ellis learned Josh did not intend to come back. He was moving away from West Valley permanently. It was surprising to us, but it wasn't. Remember, police had been keeping close tabs on Josh's movements, including using a GPS tracker. We're eyes on, we're following him, we're doing everything that we can to see if we can pick up on any cues and he'll kind of screw up somewhere and we can be like, okay, there it is, or, you know, and, and be able to locate her. Word of Josh's arrival spread quickly among the community in Puyallup. It didn't take long for Josh to kind of ruffle the waters up there. And, you know, when people started learning that he was in the area and his kids were coming to church or whatnot, you know, it caused some concern, and rightfully so, because I think everybody wanted to, to see an end in this investigation and probably wanted to see him sitting in jail. And then, obviously, Susan to be found. This is Cold, Episode 8, Wearing a Wire. I'm Dave Cauley. Right back after this. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com plus and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else. 
I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! Members of the Gem Heights Ward were buzzing. Josh had suddenly shown up in their midst. He attended services at the church on the first Sunday of 2010, January 3rd, with his boys Charlie and Braden. It had been a while since Josh had attended church with any sort of regularity. When he and Susan had met, of course, Josh was an every-Sunday kind of guy. His personal journals from that time often included what he called spiritual entries. I have many sore trials, but I am exceedingly blessed and exceedingly blessed in the Spirit and so much that I know what I have to do, that I have to live righteously in order to receive those blessings. But of course, Josh had lost interest in religion just a few years after marrying Susan. That remained a source of friction in their marriage right up until she disappeared. So, it seemed odd that he would suddenly find faith again right then. There was a logic to it. Josh needed help. He introduced himself to the bishop of the Gem Heights Ward, a man named Dahl Johnson, as the husband with the missing wife in Salt Lake City. Then he explained he was moving into the neighborhood He'd lost his job and couldn't afford food. The bishop offered Josh food assistance and gave him the name and number of an employment specialist. Josh had also brought the boys to church. Charlie and Brayden attended primary. That's the church's Sunday school program for young kids. While there, Charlie ran wild. (laughs) He was rambunctious, just weeks shy of his fifth birthday, and surrounded by new, unfamiliar people. The primary teacher, Crystal Lewis, had no clue who Charlie was. She didn't know if he was a visitor or if his parents were new members of the congregation. At one point during the class, Charlie flipped the light switch on and off. Crystal told him to stop. He just grinned having discovered a new game. Then he turned the lights out again. Crystal warned Charlie that if he didn't shape up, she would have to tell his mom and dad that he was misbehaving. My mom is dead, Charlie said. Lewis was stunned. Later that day, she learned Charlie's last name was Powell. She realized he was the son of the missing woman from Utah, the son of the guy who'd been all over the news. Five days later, Josh was back in Utah. He and his brother Michael pulled up to the Sarah Circle house in West Valley with a U-Haul truck and trailer. In spite of all that had happened, Josh's neighbors turned out to help him pack. They moved boxes, tools, and furniture into the truck. Josh stood around, watching and giving directions. I helped pack the kitchen up, most of the kitchen, a little teeny bit in the bedroom, 
I felt uncomfortable in the bedroom because, like, that's your private space. I don't want to be in there. Mm. <laughs> and then um, a little bit downstairs and in the storage. Wendy Trujillo's parents lived a couple houses away from the Powell house. She had heard rumors about trouble in Josh and Susan's marriage, but wasn't sure what to believe. All the food storage they had, I'm like, uh, she couldn't have been starving her out of food. They have five-gallon jugs of rice and peanut butter and corn and, like, all kinds of food storage that last for a long time. And five gallons of peanut butter in more than one five-gallon bucket is quite a bit. <laughs> so There were other buckets in the basement, though, that Josh didn't want anyone but his brother Michael to get near. After Josh and Michael had moved them out of the basement, Wendy noticed what appeared to be an odd chemical splashed on the exposed insulation of the cellar. Some of it also appeared to have spilled on the floor in the kitchen. Josh joked that it was blood and he'd better clean it up before the police arrived. To me it was, you don't joke about stuff like that when you're in a situation like he was in. When Josh wasn't looking, Wendy pressed a piece of packing tape to the spot on the kitchen floor, collecting a sample. She did the same thing in the cellar. She eventually provided both pieces of tape to police who tested the samples for blood. Both came back negative. At one point, Josh quipped he had just loaded Susan's head into the truck. Then he laughed. Wendy didn't respond, so Josh asked if she had heard him. I looked at him and I was like, Looking, I turned away and looked down and finished packing, and I'm like, did he really just say that? Are you serious? Josh wouldn't give it up. Finally, Wendy asked him if he meant a mannequin head, something Susan would have used for cosmetology. Josh said, yeah, then laughed again. It was interesting because sometimes he'd crack those horrible jokes, and then sometimes he'd be really emotional. Whenever he packed up in the bedroom... He'd get really emotional and he'd cry and he'd have to come out of the room and take a break and then he'd try to go back in and sometimes he's like, all right, I'm not going to work on this for, you know, till I need to say a different day. Word made it back to Susan's parents in Washington that Josh was abandoning the house. The fact that he was moving back just said he knows where she is and that she's not coming back. Chuck Cox called Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves. We went over to help pack up, not because we felt like that was the right thing for him to do, to leave, but because we wanted to, I guess, be a little bit more in the know. Chuck had asked us to set aside a couple of Susan's personal things that he didn't want disappearing. Uh, she had a, a graduation present, which was a, a bench with uh, storage in it, and uh, she had her journals in there, and we wanted her journals. They're our daughter's journals. They, we should have our journals. And uh, he wanted everything. He, he, what use would he have for her dresses? None, but he wanted them. Michael saw Jennifer walking out of the house with some boxes, not toward the U-Haul, but instead toward her own van. He stepped in front of his older sister and told her to stop. So it just felt like a really strange situation. Why are you all covering up for him? Why aren't you just pushing him to just tell what he knows? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? Josh told Jennifer she couldn't take the boxes or the deacon's bench. She called Susan's dad, then handed her phone to Josh. He argued with Chuck, but finally agreed to let Jennifer take the bench. So when he said we could have it, I said... 
she heard, yes, we can have it. She took it and put it in the car and they drove it away. So it was gone. And then later he changed his mind and said, oh, no, I want it. No, you can't. Sorry, it's gone. So then it was, oh, you stole it. No. Because of pressure from other ward members that were in the room at the time, we were able to get that deacon's bench and and some things. He wouldn't give the, I don't think he ended up giving the pictures. Or Susan's journals. Under no circumstances would he allow the Coxes to have those. Well, his dad wanted the journals, and he gives them to his dad. Really? What an idiot. I, I, who would do that? I if the move back to Washington was meant to be a clean break for Josh, it didn't work out that way. He called the Gem Heights ward leaders on January 11th to let them know he'd need help unloading the U-Haul. Latter-day Saints tend to have something of a reputation when it comes to this kind of service. The task of helping Josh fell to the ward's elders' quorum. The president of the elders' quorum was a man named Rod Stevens. He explained to Josh it would take some time to rally enough people, but they'd get the job done. Rod and about five other guys met Josh at his storage unit in the city of Sumner on the evening of Wednesday, January 13th. Yeah, it was a good-sized storage unit, and they even built um, a loft above it so we could put stuff up higher even. His father was there, and his brother, his younger brother, was there. That would, of course, have been Michael. Rod and the crew started to unload the U-Haul. Uh, he had some uh, kid stuff, uh, his stuff, but I, in fact, I remember he didn't have anything of Susan's, really, which surprised me. There just wasn't anything of hers, but it was just all his stuff and the kid's stuff. Steve and Michael both pitched in, helping carry and stack boxes. Josh stood off to one side and watched. Josh is lazy, uh, one of the laziest people I've known. He was kind of aloof from us. He would kind of walk around and look at all of his, his goods, but he didn't help lift anything. He didn't help his father, didn't help his brother. He ate Dorito chips and drank water. And he did that until I was so frustrated that I would grab boxes and put them right in Josh's hands. Then he would take the box that I gave him, he would walk, set it down, then he'd go back and drink his water and eat his potato chips. Josh didn't even bother with conversation during the two hours it took to stack the storage unit. No, in fact, uh, he rarely said anything at all except to tell us thanks and that he was, because I kept handing him boxes, he told me, he said, well, I'm really tired and really thirsty, is what he told me. And I said, okay, and then had him another box. I didn't care. If Josh had bothered to ask, he might have learned Rod wasn't only the elders' quorum president. He was also a federal agent. Rod's day job was with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. I work in law enforcement, so I, my own thoughts were, I wonder if part of her body is in this bucket that I'm offloading. And he had, he had so many buckets, I can't recall now, but I, I won't tell you, 50, 100 buckets of five-gallon buckets so every time I'm picking up a heavy bucket, I'm thinking, what is, is part of Susan in this bucket? Literally, I'm, I'm wondering that. The barrels contained food storage. Grain, mostly. Rod kept his eyes open, though, for any possible shred of evidence. He didn't see any. No, if I would have found something, then I would have stopped it right then, and I would have held it. I would have called West Valley, and then I would have called the local agency out. We would have held it, period. And then I would have backed myself off because... Yeah, this wouldn't have been my, my jurisdiction or my... But, I, but I, it would have stopped right then. Of course, that didn't happen. When they were done, Rod contacted his boss, who just happened to be a former police officer for West Valley City. 
It was a crazy coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. You probably win the lottery easier than, than saying, hey, I was Josh Powell's elder scorn president and I work in law enforcement. Rod's boss reached out to some old contacts at the department and told them where they could find Josh's storage unit. Detective Ellis Maxwell was already on the hunt for it. He had traveled to Washington that same week and had visited several storage unit businesses in the area. At the time, police believed Josh, or possibly Steve, might be holding Susan captive in one. Ellis also visited Steve's work, Washington Correctional Industries. We didn't spend any time uh, lallygagging around. We, we were interviewing friends and family, past old friends, high school friends, all the way to the Sunday school teachers and putting together and developing plans as far as what our next step was going to be. On the same day that Rod Stevens was helping unload Josh's U-Haul, the Sunday school teacher, Crystal Lewis, was telling Ellis what Charlie Powell had told her. His mommy was dead. That wasn't even the most dramatic thing to happen that day. On January 13th, Josh's estranged older sister Jennifer learned her husband, Kirk, was scheduled to fly to Seattle for work the following week. I suddenly had this idea that I needed to go too, and that we needed to go and confront Josh and see if we could get him to confess. She called the West Valley Police Department to ask for some advice. At first... The response didn't seem all that enthusiastic. They don't know who to trust. They don't know that I'm really, really there to help them. But Jennifer had started to develop a rapport with many of the detectives. I called Ellis and I asked him, can you, I mean, can I do this? I didn't even know if they would be okay with that. You know, would that be okay? Would that be legal? Would that be, would that mess up what they're doing? Ellis warned Jennifer that confronting Josh could be dangerous. But he couldn't stop her. The idea continued to stir in Jennifer's mind. And we're just bouncing some ideas off, and I'm like, (laughs) what if I got wired? What if the police were, like, behind this and actually wired me, and we we got, like, evidence? So I called Ellis again, and I'm like, this is is what I want to do. I think, you know, what if we wired me? And I went in. It was great. I'll never forget when Jennifer came to me with that proposal. I, I'm not going to lie, I kind of got a smile on my face and I was like, I like this. <laughs> but it wasn't that simple. Utah is a one-party consent state. That means as long as one person in a conversation knows it's being recorded, it's all good. Washington, on the other hand, is two-party consent. All people involved must be made aware of and agree to being recorded. Jennifer obviously wasn't going to tell the rest of her family she was carrying a hidden microphone. So because of that, uh, you really got to jump through a lot of hoops and your warrant needs to have the right language. Ellis reached out to Detective Gary Sanders with the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. They worked together to secure a warrant that would allow Jennifer to break the two-party consent rule. I mean, when your own sister, your own sibling, your own blood is willing to turn and she knows that that's what's going on, that speaks volumes. Kirk and Jennifer arrived in Washington on January 21st. The following day, they went to the Pierce County Precinct to meet the team. Got all wired up. I had a, a thing in my pocket. 
and that was recording. It was also transmitting a live feed of that audio to a police vehicle parked a street or two away from the Powell home. A helicopter orbited overhead. They didn't anticipate violence, but the police gave Jennifer code words to use if the situation got out of hand. If that happened, Pierce County deputies would rush the house. It was a little uh, nerve-wracking simply because you just don't know what's going to happen, right? Yeah, we know Jennifer, we know the Powells, but we all know emotions are hard to manage. And so once she was in that situation, it was a little nerve-wracking. Jennifer summoned her courage. She and Kirk pulled up to the curb outside of her father's house at about 5.30 p.m., stepped out of the car, and knocked on the door. The audio you are hearing now comes from the recording device Jennifer was wearing that evening. For the first time in years, the whole Powell clan, Steve, Jennifer, Josh, John, Michael, Alina, and the boys, Charlie and Brayden, were together under one roof. Relations between my family and I were already strained. And so the fact that I would show up is probably a big red flag to them already. And so are they on their guard? Yeah, for sure. They're on their guard. Susan's absence loomed over the gathering, but no one acknowledged it. It's the elephant in the room that you completely avoid, except that you have to skirt around it because it's taken up so much room. Charlie and Braden seemed excited to see familiar faces from their former home in Utah. Both boys had recently celebrated birthdays. It's my birthday! It is! It's your birthday, Charlie! It's your birthday! Susan had not tried to contact her boys on Christmas or on either one of their birthdays. Yet another sign, she was not only missing, but likely dead. Charlie, now five, had a message for Jennifer about her recent appearances on the news. I have one more thing to tell you. Yeah. Quit, 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 um, uh, media, um, okay, quit on that media. Have they been too bothersome lately? Not even at all. That last voice belonged to Josh. He chatted with Kirk and Jennifer about his trip with Michael in the U-Haul a couple of weeks prior. Did Mike drive part of the way? Did he really? He was nervous he was, about he that. He told me he didn't want to drive. He, he was too nervous to do it. Yeah, Mike Josh seemed relaxed. He talked freely about birthday party plans for the boys and his efforts to find a new job. He said he hoped to land something in the IT field. If not, well... There was always unemployment. Thought right now is it would be too to take a pay cut to go to work for a pay cut compared to unemployment. And this early in the game. Now, a couple months. The Sarah Circle House back in West Valley City was also on Josh's mind. He still had a mortgage to pay, and with no income, 
the house was turning into an albatross. Probably going to have to go back, obviously, eventually. Oh, really? Oh, you're going to go back to Utah, you mean? Yeah. I don't know when. I haven't decided. Josh wasn't sure selling was the best idea, though. The market was soft, and the house still needed some work, like finishing the new back deck or completing the basement. I don't know if I'll rent it or sell it, you know. I like the rental idea, but I just don't want to let it go. Josh's finances were tight. Not only had he lost his job, Susan's income was gone as well. He had used the power of attorney to draw her 401k, but that money wouldn't last very long. A both of our credit is tied to that house, and if we lose it, then we're, you know, we're basically going to have a problem. Yours is already kind of not so okay, right? We got a bankruptcy. I had a bankruptcy. Oh, is it gone already? Wow. Oh, it's over. I, no one denies me credit. I've never been denied credit bankruptcy. At no point during any of this did Josh talk about Susan as anything other than an asset. He didn't lament her loss or complain about the straits she had put him in by leaving, something he might have been expected to do if she'd taken off with some other guy. In fact, he didn't raise a single question about where she might be. The topic of Susan's disappearance never came up until I brought it up. I had to force the subject, and it was, it was very strange and strained, you know, at least on my side, it felt very strained because I'm like, this is so weird. We're not even saying anything about it. And he doesn't appear to be distressed at all about his wife not being here, not knowing where she is. The Powell family sat down to dinner. Josh, uncharacteristically, asked to say grace. All right, boys, let's just say a super fast prayer, okay? Here we go. Jennifer's heart raced as they ate. Behind a forced smile, she wondered how best to make her move. I just didn't even know how to go about it. Do you do this in a soft approach? Do you take a hard line? How do you approach someone when you know that they're guilty of a, a heinous crime and get them to admit that. Pork chops disappeared from their plates, and dinner was soon done. While the rest of the family cleared the table, Jennifer pulled Josh aside into the office, closing the French doors behind them. In a hushed voice, she told her brother there had been rumors that he would be arrested soon. You're going to be gone for a long time. I, I, don't, I don't understand what you mean. 
Don't understand jail? No, I don't understand why you're... what rumors you're... I'm just, I'm just concerned. I, you know what? It doesn't look good. From everything I've seen... I know this is tough to understand, so listen close. You know what? I, I, I got the scene. I'm just thinking that you need to step up now and do a plea bargain. Jennifer told Josh to take a plea bargain. Anyway. It'll reverse the sentence, Jack. No, no, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. You want to go to jail for a long time? I don't want to see that happen, and you're not going to be able to see a voice for years. Jennifer warned him if he goes to jail, it will be for a long time, and he wouldn't be able to see his boys for years. Jennifer pressed, questioning where he had gone in the rental car on December 8th and 9th, those mysterious 800 miles in 18 hours. What, what's up with all this? this you were wandering around. They, they think that, that you were going for hundreds of miles on Tuesday. Where were you going with that? There's no plea bargain. I doubt the rumors, but whatever. I mean, who knows? You know, they do what they do. They think what they think. I don't know what to say. Josh's response I doubt the rumors, but whatever. I mean, who knows? Jennifer tried another approach. So, what happened? My attorney told me to don't talk about it. Sometimes that's specific. My attorney has told me just don't talk about it, about specifics. What happened? What happened that night? I've already told. You know, I sat down with the cops. I've told them everything. So you didn't tell me anything. Hi, Beth. And you haven't said anything to me. Josh's you know, responses and his behavior and his actions when Jennifer approaches him, you know, kind of similar to like the interview and interrogations that we conducted with him. You know, I, I, I can't talk about it. I, I got to go through my attorney. I mean, dude, you're not talking to a cop, you're talking to your sister. Why not? Why don't you tell me that? Why don't you tell me? Why don't you put my mind at ease and tell me what happened? I'm your sister. This is my friend. She's your wife. For crying out loud, what happened? I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Well, what did you do? What did you do that night? What do you know? Jennifer's appeals didn't work. Josh wasn't going to tell her anything. You can only play that for a minute. You can only act 
the way he was acting, you can only act like that for so long. And he never fell out of that, which tells me that, you know, he is who he is. And he's clearly responsible. It just doesn't seem like you care at all. It just doesn't seem like you care at all. Honestly, I can't believe that you're going to say that, huh? You walked away. You walked away. What do you mean, walked away? You walked away. You, you're trying to get rid of the house? You walking away from it? The house I can't afford. So? They're not going to take it out from under you right now. Josh and Jennifer's youngest brother, Michael, had noticed them slipping away after dinner. He had followed them, staying out of view, but within earshot. For them to hear everything, I don't know that they were hearing everything, but they were probably concerned because it was a full glass wall with the glass doors, and you could see everything that was going on. And he, they were probably a little distressed. In fact, Michael described that day in a court filing years later. He said he had positioned himself just outside the glass doors because that was standard practice in the family with people they didn't trust. He heard what Jennifer was saying and relayed that information to his dad. Steve swooped in and put a stop to it. He interrupted, telling Josh it was time to go pick up a birthday cake for the boys' party. He told Jennifer it was probably time for she and Kirk to leave. But he was just, they were all just trying to play it cool, pretend like nothing was happening, that they had nothing to do with it. As soon as Steve left the room, Jennifer went back to work. She challenged Josh, asking what he was doing to aid the search. Josh replied in typical form that he was building a website. I'm not going to do anything in the public. I don't care what anyone says about me. You can say what they want. That's why I can't really... People go out. The Mark Hacking, he got up and walked away from his... I don't as know soon as who he that is. Him, as soon as he killed his wife. That's the guy that killed him and killed his wife and put her in the dump. Okay. You did hear something about that. Yeah. Josh was not being honest here. He knew the Mark Hacking case very well. Here again is Ellis Maxwell. He made a comment to somebody about the Lori Hacking case. And he said that Mark Hacking screwed up because he, he lied to the police too many times. He didn't give them, he lied too many times and he didn't give them reliable information. A brief aside is necessary here. Mark Hacking shot and killed his pregnant wife Lori in their Salt Lake City apartment in July of 2004, just months after Josh and Susan first arrived in Utah. Hacking tried to stage Lori's murder as a disappearance. He took her car to a nearby park where she liked to jog and abandoned it there. He dumped her body and the mattress upon which he'd shot her in a dumpster, then went and bought a new mattress to replace the blood-stained one. Hacking called 911 to report his wife missing, saying she'd failed to return from a morning jog. He went before news cameras and tearfully asked for help. The local community sprang into action, just as it had two years earlier, when a young girl named Elizabeth Smart had been abducted from her bedroom. Salt Lake City police detectives immediately spotted inconsistencies with Mark's story. Little details, like the position of the driver's seat in Lori's car. 
Lori was short and wouldn't have been able to reach the gas pedal, but the seat was set perfectly for somebody as tall as Mark. They also learned Mark had not graduated from the University of Utah as he had claimed. Nor had he been accepted to a postgraduate program in North Carolina, as he'd led his family and Lori to believe. Mark Hacking had woven a web of lies that was stunning in its complexity. It had all come apart when Lori learned his secret, confronted him, and demanded he come clean. That is why he killed her. Police recovered Lori's decomposed remains from a landfill after a search that stretched on for several weeks. Detective Ellis Maxwell had a hand in that. I was a part of that investigation. I was out at the landfill for, I can't even remember how many weeks, looking for Lori. Uh, I haven't been to the landfill since. <laughs> I, I was sitting on the other side of the fence a lot of those days Were you? just waiting. Oh, yeah. my. Yeah. That was, it was horrible. Yeah. That was not the only tie. Before her death, Lori Hacking had worked for Wells Fargo Investments, the same company where Susan was working when she disappeared. Some of Susan's co-workers had known Lori. When Susan disappeared in 2009... Many people were quick to draw parallels between her case and that of the hackings five years earlier. The sense in the community seemed to be that Josh would crack under the pressure and confess, just as Mark Hacking had, and that the police would in short order locate and recover Susan's remains. Neither happened. Josh was a much better liar than Mark. Josh clearly took something from that case. And in all honesty, it's very good advice, right? You cannot offer too many lies, but you also have to offer some truth, okay? And he followed that fairly well. The comparison didn't phase Josh. He brushed off Jennifer's comment, flatly denying that his situation was anything like that of Mark Hacking. So why were you having so many problems just before she disappeared then? You weren't having a lot of problems. Well, it's been a few weeks, but... You weren't having problems? You weren't having problems? No. I just don't buy it. I talked to Susan myself. Josh? Yeah. Tell me that I didn't hear it from her. Josh had had enough. He told Jennifer he was leaving to go get the birthday cake. I finally actually shoved him into the bathroom and was like, come on, just tell me where her body is. I think we just need to confess now and get it over with. Don't be ridiculous. I've told you already. I, I see it in your face, Jeff. I can see it in your face. I can see it in your face. I don't know what to say because I've already told you. Everything I've seen and now this. Just I don't know what you mean and now this. And now this in your face. I don't know what to say. If but you, I, if I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get ready for the party. Josh left with his brothers, John and Michael. The operation, in Jennifer's eyes, had failed. 
She and Kirk gathered their things and started making for the door. On the way, she shot a parting comment to her dad, Steve. He'll have to enjoy it while he can, I guess. What do you mean, while he can? I don't think he's going to be able to escape this much longer. Escape what? Escape what? Excuse me? It's not obvious to me, maybe obvious to you, but you, you might imagine things. You've always had a hard time with reality. That's a reality in your case. I don't know what you're talking about. Hard time is my reality. Yeah, you, 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 you need to face reality. Okay. Yourself in I'll your own way. Reality. Yeah. Let's see. Joshua can't be very nice. And we can see. Hmm. That doesn't sound like reality. Steve told Jennifer to face reality, and Jennifer said, I'll face reality. Let's see. Josh went camping in the middle of the night, and Susan's gone now. Hmm. That doesn't sound like reality unless he did something. Yeah. Anyway, why don't you, you know, I think, I think it's time to, to go. I think it's time to go. Kind of worn out your welcome. Yeah. The pretense of civility that had cloaked the Powell family during dinner came off. You are, you are a goddamn bitch, is what you are. And to talk about your brother and my son that way and to make things up. You're willing to call your daughter that? Shocked, Jennifer's husband, Kirk, stepped in to defend his wife. Steve, yeah. it's been a month and a half. Hey, you know what? Anyone who said the thing about the Elizabeth Smart, right. she said that and, and days after it happened. Somewhere out there, maybe she's still alive. Right. But after a month and a half, an adult female, odds are like zero, or she's dead. Those okay. are the two scenarios. They're talking over top of one another there, but Kirk told Steve the odds were Susan was likely dead. The other female voice you hear there belongs to Alina, the youngest of the Powell children. Jennifer questioned why Josh had spent the morning after Susan's disappearance cleaning his house and doing laundry. Alina offered a full-throated defense of Josh. You know how hard it is to sit on your ass and do nothing when you're an absolute horrible, horrific pain. Yeah, you have I your do. heart to break. The last month and a half has been nothing but pain. And you sat there and stayed yes. at a wall the whole time. He is different yeah. than you. He works when That's he exactly what has he been happening. around and works. Did you hear her that is why he's going around doing everything he does. Alina claimed Josh dealt with his pain by working and accused Jennifer of doing nothing. Steve was irate. He seized on something Jennifer had said, ignoring the talk about Josh. She said that I hated Susan? Yeah, yeah. That that ever since you made a pass at her? Oh, that is the funniest thing in the world. Did she tell you this? No, hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah. Because she's a lying there is a lot going on here. Alina, it seemed, felt little care for Susan. But Steve, confronted by this idea of Susan hating him, 
rejected the thought. No, she didn't tell you the whole story, and but I'm not going to tell it to you because you no, guys aren't is, going to Dad has accept it anyway, and I'm not you know going what? to... Right. Hey, she she lied to you, you're probably right. Fine. You're probably right. You, you, know, you probably wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Probably she so. lied to you about it. But the reality is... The fact is, yeah, he has yeah. always spoken highly of her. He has gotten her birthday presents every year. He's got her Christmas present. and buy her back. You know, just get off my porch. Get off my porch. Jennifer and Kirk retreated to the car. As they drove away from the house, she filled in her husband on what Josh had said, or more accurately, hadn't said. Did Josh get like vocal or anything, or did he physically call more? No, he got defensive, but he was all more like, I can't believe you would do that, or you think of this. I know that's tough to hear, but Kirk asked Jennifer if she was okay, and Jennifer said no. Yeah, I guess that's it. Well, yeah, that's not me to talk to my dad, but he is so awful. Kirk consoled his wife as best he could. Then, Jennifer broke down over what she had seen in her brother's eyes. My God, he killed her. Josh had not confessed but Jennifer was more sure than ever that he had killed Susan. What that brought to us and brought to the police department and would have brought to a trial is just, it was another piece. Another piece of Josh's personality, lack of concern, consideration for Susan, lack of cooperation, and you know, at the end of the day, just his guilt. Looking back, Ellis couldn't help but praise Jennifer. She went in, she did a phenomenal job, in my opinion. She probably felt like she didn't do enough. She didn't push hard enough. She didn't get what we all wanted. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I hope she knows that there was nobody that was gonna break Josh, nobody. Josh had told Kirk and Jennifer he wanted to sell his house in West Valley City. That was complicated because Susan's name was on the mortgage. Instead, he turned to his former neighbor Dax Guzman with an offer. Dax had helped Josh rebuild the deck on the back of the Sarah Circle house in the months prior to Susan's disappearance. Josh then suggested Dax and his family move one street over and rent the Sarah Circle house. He called us, asked us if we wanted to rent it, rent the house since they weren't going to use it. And so we took him up on the offer and um, because he knew I knew how to build things and was good with my hands, he asked if I'd be interested in maybe a reduced rent and working something out if I 
finish the basement, so we agreed to that. Life in the Sarah Circle house had its drawbacks, though. News crews continued to set up on the sidewalk, their bright lights keeping the Guzman kids up at night. For us, it was just a house. Honestly, when we moved in and after he left, I tore into that house. Dax wanted to know if Susan might still be on the property. Tore into the ground, tore up a little bit, some of the parts of the basement that looked like they had been redone, but found out it was just more plumbing that had gone in, which was fine. Tore up the backyard, the garden that, that was there, several feet down. I, I tore the whole thing apart, just seeing, just making sure that there wasn't anything there. Look through the shed, there's a whole bunch of 50-gallon water gallons in there and made sure that there was no body in there, too. It was just a lot of freaky stuff, but, you know, you see things on TV, you see things on on, on the news and, and movies, so I checked as many places as I could, and she wasn't there. Josh had a hard time finding allies among the local church congregation in Washington. By that point, word had spread among members of the Gem Heights ward and some were unnerved or outright fearful to see a suspected murderer sitting in their Sabbath services. He came to church for a while, and he would sit in the back of the elders' quorum. He would open up his scriptures and never turn a page and look blankly in them for the whole hour. It was, yeah, you could just tell. He was sitting there, but he wasn't there. Church members fell in love, though, with Charlie and Braden. The noisy, playful boys would run through the hallways of the church building on Sundays. Rod Stevens, the president of the ward's elders' quorum, who had helped Josh unpack his U-Haul, said it seemed as though Josh wanted to find his boys some friends. But it caused a lot of problems because everyone liked his two sons, but they didn't want Josh around. And nobody wanted to let Josh in their homes. So it was awkward. It was tough. And you really felt bad for those two good-looking kids. But... Yeah, and as much as you want to be involved in those kids and help those kids, you don't want him by you. And you could just feel it. He just was vacant. Before long, Josh and the boys disappeared. Maybe a month or two months had two months had gone by, and uh, he quit coming to church. And then finally, the executive secretary to the bishop, uh, he saw him at Lowe's and said, hey, we haven't seen you in church for a while. And that's when he told him, he said, I don't believe in God anymore. A few months later... Josh published a website explaining his decision to abandon the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and investigate non-denominational Christianity as an alternative. The proficiency of the Mormon Church to organize and motivate people to action can be used for positive purposes, such as when church members help people with moving or with home repairs. However, this solidarity also motivates individuals to cover for fellow Mormons and attack perceived critics of Mormonism. I'm not implying that there's anything wrong with Josh choosing not to identify as a Latter-day Saint any longer. But this website was a slap in the face to many of the people, both in Utah and in Washington, who had volunteered their time and effort to help Josh move, in spite of their own suspicions. Uh, It's absolutely self-serving, in my opinion. And I think he was there two reasons. One, I think he needed the help of the church, which was okay, but I think he wanted to keep up appearances just long enough to where he thought it was okay. And after that, then he quickly left. Josh's move to Washington had taken Charlie and Braden away from the only members of the Powell family who were cooperating with the investigation. Jennifer, and to a lesser extent, Josh's mom, Teresa. 
During January, Detective Kim Welty placed a call to Washington State's Child Services Agency. She wanted to know if they could drop in on the Powell home and see how the boys were doing. A lawyer at the Washington Attorney General's office responded, saying their agency didn't have the authority to perform welfare checks unless there was a specific accusation of abuse or neglect. West Valley Police did not have that. They also couldn't speak candidly with Washington's child welfare workers because their case was still under a court secrecy order. They were allowed to talk, though, to the local law enforcement agency. Pierce County Sheriff's Detective Gary Sanders helped secure a warrant from a Washington judge, allowing deputies to go to Steve Powell's house and seize the boys. So basically, they're a form of evidence with their statement, and they just wanted to be interviewed because now they were in this home and they were kind of closed off with Stephen and Josh and all of them living in the house. They served that warrant on the morning of March 10, 2010. Another Pierce County detective named Teresa Berg approached the boys. She went in there and the boys ran to her, let her pick them up, and they just glommed onto her, which was crazy. You know, strangers and stuff like that, taking you out of a home, you would think there'd be a little bit. But she held them and, and then we t interacted with them, and I think it was kind of something they were missing. It was just, anytime we were in there, it was cold. It was a cold environment. As Detective Kim Welty carried Charlie out of the house, the five-year-old asked if he was being arrested. She assured him he was not. The police drove the boys to the Mary Bridge Safe and Sound building. West Valley detectives, including Kim Welty, who had performed the first interview with Charlie in December, were going to get a second shot at it. Repeat interviews of child witnesses were not usual protocol. Still, she had to try. She brought Charlie into a separate room and tried to talk to him. He was not very cooperative. He told the detective he didn't want to talk and walked out of the room. In a formal report, Welty wrote, anything from this point on was not going to be the best case scenario. She tried again. She gave Charlie paper and crayons, hoping they would help him relax. Then she started to ask about Susan. Charlie told her he did not want to talk about that. She asked if he had been camping recently. Charlie said he only goes camping in Utah, a desert with rattlesnakes. She pressed for more, asking if Susan had gone camping with him. Charlie told her he didn't want to talk about that stuff. He wanted to color, not talk. Then he left the room. Again. Little kiddos like that at that age are... They're tough. Welty turned her attention to Brayden. She started by asking if they could speak about his mom. Brayden said something about his mommy, then trailed off into gibberish. If they were going to get any answers, it was clear. They would have to come from Charlie. The Pierce County crew took the boys to their office a few blocks away for lunch. While they were away from the Safe and Sound building, Charlie told the deputies that he would talk. When they returned, Detective Welty asked what he wanted to talk about. Charlie said he wanted to work on his homework and needed a pair of scissors, but was afraid he might cut himself if she distracted him. Welty suggested Charlie not use the scissors while they talked. He said it was okay. He would just ignore her. Yeah. 
Welty again asked about Susan and camping. Charlie said he couldn't talk about those things because they were secret. He said his mom was lost, but he did not see where. He said his Uncle John knew where. This was interesting. Detective Welty asked Charlie who told him these things were secret. He said his brain. Then he explained his mom had told him she was going to the North Pole and would not come back until it stopped snowing. Welty again asked who had told him these things. Charlie said no one, then changed his answer. He said his dad told him that. He had been exposed to all of that coaching and guiding and direction from Steve and Josh. And so, you know, they're young, right? And they pick up on that and they see that behavior all day long when they're in the house. They hear it. And so they, you know, they start acting and walking the walk like everybody else in that house. Charlie babbled about the earth going crazy, about wanting his Aunt Jennifer and Uncle Kirk to die. He wondered what time it was and left to find out. When he popped back into the room a few minutes later, he told Detective Welty he had only guessed his mom was at the North Pole. The investigators got nothing useful out of the boys that day. Man, they're locked up in this pal home and being coached and being directed to, you don't talk about this, you don't talk about that, and... That's why we got nothing from Charlie when we did that second interview. The police had no choice but to return them home. Pierce County Detective Gary Sanders told me the drive back to Steve Powell's house was more telling than anything Charlie actually said in the interview. It was weird as I'm driving along. I'm driving along. Teresa's in the back seat with both Charlie and Braden. And Charlie's talking along, just, you know, very talkative and stuff like that. And then he noticed well, I turned off Meridian, I think it was, and I was going down into their neighborhood. And it was like a, a switch. He just flipped. And all of a sudden he was like, he started looking around. And he goes, well, I'm just going to tell him I was with friends. And we're like, what are you talking about, Charlie? And he goes, no, I, I'm just going to tell him. I'm, I'm going to tell him that I was with friends. And that's all it was. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I'm just going to tell my dad that I was with friends and nothing more. And it was, it was the weird, the transformation that as soon as he knew he was going back to the house, there was going to be some consequences for him speaking with us and being with us and stuff. And that was kind of scary at that point because how young he was, but he, he was adamant about that. And so we got back there and right when he got in there, he, you know, ran up to Josh and was just like, oh yeah, I was with friends, dad, and, and, and tried to play it off like it was nothing. And I, I'd, I'd love to be a fly on that wall of what Josh talked to him about after we left. On the next episode of Cold. If he would kill his wife oh. because he's got something oh, broken inside of him. He kill his kids. He might, you know. Do, you, do we know that? I know you're just saying, oh, he'd never do that. But I don't think so. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up thecoldpodcast.com. Also, if Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, 
In other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to the cold team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Kira Faramond, Josh Tilton, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bonmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening.